from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Frontline federal responders to the COVID-19 pandemic could get a pay raise if a proposal from Senate Democrats becomes law. The proposal would give essential frontline workers up to a $25,000 pay raise. The raise would only be $5,000 for employees that make more than $200,000 a year. The Army's launching a challenge to build an inexpensive, easy-to-put-together ventilator. The winner can earn $100,000 and possible follow-on contracts. The Office of the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Research and Development, Dr. Thomas Russell, started taking virtual pitches today. Federal inspectors general would serve seven-year terms under a bill in both the House and Senate. Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut says the bill would only let a president or agency head fire an IG for, quote, permanent incapacity, inefficiency, neglect of duty, malfeasance, or conviction of a felony or conduct involving moral turpitude. GovExec reports the bill would let IGs serve for an extra year until their successors were appointed if necessary. The great power competition the national defense strategy articulates could have less to do with new technology and more to do with a democracy beating out its autocratic opponents. To discuss how the United States should approach the competition with its adversaries, Matthew Craning, director of the Global Strategy Initiative at the Atlantic Council. He's author of the new book, The Return of the Great Power Rivalry. Matthew, thanks for coming on the program. We talked a little bit before we went on the air. There's pessimism in some corners about great power competition with Russia and China. Why do you think that pessimism is unwarranted, Matthew? Yes, well, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, as you pointed out, the national security strategy and national defense strategy say that the return of great power rivalry with Russia and China is the foremost threat facing the country. And I think many analysts think that uh, Russia and, and especially China's state-led capitalism autocratic model uh, is better than our system, that uh, the Chinese leadership can plan for the long term, pull levers and get things done. Uh, and I was skeptical of this and so uh, decided to write this new book and um, uh, analyze great power rivalries from the ancient world uh, through the present between democracies and autocracies uh, and find that democracies actually do pretty well. They have unique economic, diplomatic and military uh, strengths and autocracies have some vulnerabilities. So I uh, come away from this research more optimistic about where we are, uh, that the United States has its flaws, but our fundamentals are still better than Russia's and China's. It, the, the basic hypothesis is that we have two, the, for the pessimism, is that we have two great power competitors and we have a variety of minor players on the stage as well. That's actually not that different than the Cold War that we wound up winning, Soviet Union, Take, uh, took the role that China takes today. China was involved in Southeast Asia and we got involved as a result of that a number of times. What are the similarities and differences that you see between the Cold War one that we won and what we may be involved in today? Yes, uh, well one similarity is I think uh, America's grand strategy is uh, pretty similar and, and constant. And this may be counterintuitive, you often hear this argument that autocracies are better at long-term planning look at China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, Made in China 2025. Um, but, but I argue that actually democracies are better at long-term strategic planning and that basically the United States has followed the same strategy since 1945. Uh, step one is build this rules-based international system. 
Step two is invite other countries to join so long as they play by the rules. Uh, and step three is defend the system from those who challenge it. Uh, so during the Cold War, it was primarily the Soviet Union. Uh, today, it may primarily be uh, China. Uh, but I think that the, the strategy and U.S. strengths uh, will uh, serve us just as well now as they did uh, over the past 70 years. One of the advantages that you write about that an autocratic society has is the ability for the person in charge to say, do this, and everybody does it. We talk on this program all the time about speed and acquisition, especially in the defense community and the defense industrial base. How do, is there an advantage that a system like ours can turn because of its system and use what looks like a disadvantage to its advantage? Yes, I, I think so. And in, in the book, I examine these um, so-called autocratic advantages, too, uh, and find out that many of these are, are not really advantages. You know, aut autocracies can make big, bold decisions, uh, but sometimes those are big, bold mistakes. You know, Napoleon and Hitler invading Russia in winter, uh, for example. Uh, and so when it comes to China's big bets and technology today, I, I'm uh, not sure that those are all the right bets. I think they're making some mistakes. Uh, and in a democratic system, uh, you know, we're slow, uh, but that often means that the decisions that we do make are better considered. Um, and then when there is a consensus on something, uh, we can move uh, quite quickly, uh, just as quickly as autocrats. Look at us building nuclear weapons in the Manhattan Project. And I suspect we'll be able to build the kind of consensus we need to move out on artificial intelligence, hypersonic missiles, uh, some of the other important defense technologies uh, of the 21st century. You write that there are three pillars that determine who wins competitions like this. Tell me about those three quickly in the time that we have left, Matthew. Yes. Well, to be a major power, a leading power, a country needs to be strong economically, uh, needs to be strong diplomatically, and needs to be strong militarily. Uh, and so I go through each of those areas and show that democracies have some real strengths. They tend to have more innovative economies. Uh, they tend to become international global financial centers. Uh, they tend to be better at building alliances diplomatically uh, and also better at preventing counterbalancing coalitions from forming against them. Uh, and militarily, because they have these big economies, they can uh, invest in advanced military technologies. Uh, and importantly, they actually focus their militaries on the enemy, not on repressing their own populations. You know, China spends more on internal security than it does on its military. Uh, and so for all these reasons, I think the United States has um, some underappreciated strengths uh, in its coming competition with China. We have about a minute left, Matthew. You mentioned the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. It, countries are starting to learn that that is not necessarily to their advantage and sometimes tremendously to their disadvantage. Are we doing enough to take advantage of that and demonstrate that we're good actors and we want to help these countries in a win-win situation rather than a win-lose situation like Belt and Road? Yeah. It's fascinating doing the research in, in the book starting 2,500 years ago and coming to the present because some of these patterns repeat themselves over and over again. And you see these autocracies often engage in kind of core, uh, clumsy diplomacy that leads to a backlash. And I think we're seeing that now with Belt and Road. Uh, countries recognize that this is a debt trap. Um, so I do think the United States should be doing more to uh, seize on China's missteps. Uh, and I provide some recommendations in the conclusion of the book about how we can better do that. The book is the return of great power. Uh, the, re the book is the return of great power rivalry. rivalry. Matthew Kranig, thank you very much for joining me to talk about it. Thank you. My pleasure. Up next, the coronavirus impact on defense spending. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's staying on schedule and what's about to slide. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Pentagon wants to classify its projections for future year defense sp uh, program spending. This year's spending already looks different in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Todd Harrison's director of the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Todd, how is this reshaping the way the Pentagon's spending its money and how do you expect it to reshape the way the Pentagon spends its money for the rest of this fiscal year? Yeah, so with the third stimulus bill that Congress passed, out of that $2.2 trillion in the package, uh, only $10.5 billion uh, actually went to DOD. And so that money is really directed to the accounts where DOD would be incurring extra expenses because of uh, the coronavirus crisis, mainly in military personnel accounts and operation and maintenance accounts. Um, so we've seen a, you know, a flushing of cash into those accounts. Of course, DOD is doing a lot. Um, to help out with the state and local response, uh, as well as protecting the military and better positioning the military to weather this crisis. Um, but we also see some counterbalancing effects uh, that could actually free up funding under DOD's already appropriated FY20 budget. And in particular, DOD has had to slow, and in some cases halt, uh, recruiting uh, and accessions of new people into the military. Uh, just because of the crisis. And so the military is likely not going to be able to execute all of the military personnel and operation and maintenance funding it was already planning to during this fiscal year. And of course, that money will expire at the end of the year. Uh, so we may see a lot of reshuffling, a reprogramming uh, within the DOD budget to try to better utilize that money by the end of the fiscal year on September 30th. We've been having these conversations for too long, Todd. We anticipate each other's questions and answers because the next thing I was going <laughs> to ask you is whether you thought we would see a long list of reprogramming requests starting to come out of the department soon. I think we will, uh, you know, because once we get into the final quarter of the fiscal year, they're going to be working di diligently to execute all the money that Congress has appropriated. Uh, and I think also a consideration in this is trying to execute money uh, in a way that will, you know, uh, help preserve employment in the defense industrial base, uh, because that clearly is an overarching economic security issue. Uh, but also, you know, work ahead on some of DOD's priorities, because if you think about the long game here, um, DOD's got money now, but the budget uh, is likely to tighten in the next two or three years because of the record deficits that we're seeing. One of the things that every Defense Department leader that I've spoken to, civilian or uniformed, since coronavirus has started is the mission continues. We're going to keep doing what we have been doing all along in addition to whatever response elements we have to execute. Are there things that it's reasonable to assume the department can continue to deliver programs that they can continue to execute and so on? And are there things that it's reasonable to say, yeah, this isn't going to happen nearly as quickly as we expected, or this may have to go completely on hold between now and whenever the end of this is, whatever that looks like? Yeah, I think that it's not realistic to expect that the department will be able to accomplish all of the training and exercises that it had planned for this year. Uh, I think a lot of that is going to have to be scaled back. Uh, in terms of acquisition programs, I think the money can still go out the door because in that third stimulus bill, there's a, a section in there, section 3610, uh, that basically gives DOD the ability to modify the terms and conditions of, of contracts to keep paying uh, defense companies to keep their staff employed even if they are not able to work. Uh, so to pay them at a 40-hour week even if they're not able to come into the office. So. Uh, 
I think what we've got to expect on acquisition programs is they'll be able to continue to execute the funding, uh, but some of these facilities may have to close uh, if they have you know, cases of infection uh, or if they're just in too close a working quarters, uh, we may see companies starting to close facilities. So the work won't happen, but DOD will continue, you know, supporting those companies so they can keep uh, paying their workers uh, until they're able to come back. The challenge, though, is, OK, so you're continuing to pay people now. You've got the money to pay them now, but the work's not getting done. The work gets pushed into future years. And where is that money going to come from in future years to pay for the actual work on these programs that needs to be done? We have about a minute left, Todd. Speaking of future years, there's a future year beginning October 1st. All the money that we're talking about expires September 30th, as you referenced earlier in our conversation. What's your sense of how all of these discussions, all of this issue with the pandemic, paper hearings that SASC undertook and then kind of backslid on, all of that will impact what happens for fiscal 2021? Yeah, at this point, the whole you know congressional budget process is still up in the air. We're not sure how they're going to go through uh, the process over the summer. Um, I think you know th this is really unprecedented, so they're going to have to make up some new rules and new ways of operating to get through it this year. Uh, I think Congress is going to do everything they can to try to get uh, things ultimately passed by October 1st, uh, especially this year. Not only is it an election year, uh, but given the economic crisis that's going on, I think that defense tends to be, you know, less controversial uh, than other parts uh, of the overall federal government. So I think that there will be a good push to try to get it done by October 1st. Um, but, you know, looking into FY21, um, you know, I think a lot of the focus of Congress is going to be on jobs and what can we do with all parts of the budget, including defense, uh, to make sure that we're helping the economic recovery move along. Tom and then Harris. the other thing that's going to come up here. Oh, finish that thought real quickly, about 10 say, seconds. I was going to say the other thing that we ought to be looking ahead to is what's going to be included for DOD in a fourth or fifth stimulus package uh, and how can that help lead into FY21. Todd, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you, my friend. Thank you. Up next, adapting your IT strategy to respond to coronavirus. Straight ahead on Government Matters, elevating IT readiness as your infrastructure hits peak volume. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Agencies are taking another look at their IT infrastructures as they make the shift to telework. Several agencies already reporting max volume with so many remote workers. Sophia Edwards is founder and CEO at Sharp Edge. She's former chief of staff at the U.S. Marshals Service. Sophia, welcome. Thanks for coming on. What's your sense of the biggest challenges that IT leaders are up against in this shift, in some cases, from not much telework at all to almost complete telework? Well, there's a lot of challenges that uh, IT agencies are facing right now because I know workforce, teleworkforce has been a huge discussion. And, uh, you know, when you start to think about the phases that we've gone through, it's been from social distancing to you can telework if you want to you will telework. And uh, a lot of the challenges that come with that is actually securing the network. And we know that um, as far as securing the network, we know there's a lot of vulnerabilities, uh, ensuring that the workforce 
as they're tapping into their home network and then tapping into the agency's network, that we cover those security security vulnerabilities. And then also, in addition to that, is you know agencies starting to take a look at um, reevaluating end user training, security training, refresher training that they can provide to the workforce so that they know exactly what they need to do to protect the security of the network. And then of course, along with that comes ensuring network bandwidth uh, and uh, making sure that um, one, one of the things that I've, I've seen a lot of is ensuring that there's engagement, employee engagement. And I've seen some IT departments send out surveys to ensure that employees are uh, truly engaged considering the schedules that we all have to maintain and uh, you know, with kids being out of school and uh, really accommodating those different types of schedules. It's interesting to me, Sophia, because you're just the latest expert in this area to tell me that the, the people stuff, the culture stuff like employee engagement is just as important as the infrastructure stuff. What do you see moving forward as the best way to engage the kind of uh, employee who is teleworking for the first time? Somebody who's kind of new at this and is just still kind of feeling his or way through the changes that they're experiencing now. Well, one of the things that I recommend, especially for that new employee who is, you know, hasn't really teleworked before, is communication. And I think communication needs to happen both ways. Communication needs to happen from the leadership, their management, to the employee communicating with their leadership and management. And like I had mentioned before, sometimes with schedules changing and uh, management being a little bit more accommodating uh, based on the lifestyle of that individual, family responsibilities, uh, with children being out of school and parents having to homeschool. But uh, employee engagement in, in that respect is extremely important. And I know that a lot of IT departments, as a result of this pandemic, they'll be looking at different tools uh, to bring into the agencies, different tool sets, uh, collaboration tools, conferencing tools to help with that type of engagement and to not just monitor the work of their employees, but to ensure that the employees have everything they need to get the work done and to have normal business operations to continue the mission of the agency. You've got three big recommendations for agencies that are undertaking some kind of a transformation during a time like this. The first one strikes me as kind of overcome by events during the pandemic, and that is uh, a very high level managerial buy-in Pretty much everybody's forced to buy in at this point. Another one that you write about is putting a performance management structure in place. For agencies that are in the process of doing that now, what does that look like in an environment that's as fluid as it is today, Sophia? Well, actually, you know, I know that uh, as far as uh, IT departments really developing their strategic plan, they're probably not in the mindset at this time looking at what their long-term strategy looks like. They're more so thinking about what do we need to do now to survive and what do we need to do to evolve and to change and to adapt to the result of what's happening right now during this pandemic. And so what I highly recommend is for agency leadership and not just the IT department to start having discussions and make it agency-wide because IT departments, they're really the liaison between the business and the IT and to have those joint discussions to talk about what works, what doesn't work, what do we need to do, what do we need more of and how do we really need to accommodate some business process improvements to continue our operations? And so once they have those discussions, really start to take a look at reevaluating what their short-term or mid-term goals may look like 
and midterm meaning 12 to 18 months out. You can focus on your long term, that's three to five years, but we know with this pandemic, things are fast moving and they're ever changing and we really need to take advantage of um, making uh, changes now to accommodate the current environment. About 30 seconds left, Sophia. What strategies should one take away from what they're doing today to apply when this is all over? It's going to be over eventually, and people will go either back to normal or move to the next normal, whatever that is. Well, what strategies they should be taking away now is really taking a look at what they need to do to elevate their IT readiness. Um, start taking a look at uh, you know having these continued conversations. Agencies have been preparing for these type of events through continuity of operations, contingency planning, disaster recovery exercises, and so forth. So they're somewhat prepared. I know that this particular pandemic took us for a, a different turn. And, uh, you know, that work from home has been a big conversation. And that's really uh, take, taken us for that turn that I'm talking about. But what they can do now is really just start to focus on different capabilities to accommodate the needs of their agency. Start looking at these new tool sets, focus on remote capabilities, reevaluate their project priorities. To me, that is very important. Take a look at what's in the queue because we know some projects may be paused, some projects may be canceled, some alternative projects may evolve because of this situation. Sophia, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Have a great day and stay well. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.